At Highland, we're all about celebrating little wins and little ways to innovate digital processes. There's no customer pain point too small for us to help with. Maybe that's why more than half of the Fortune 100 looks to Highland to connect their content and data, improve processes, and turn little efficiencies into big wins for their customers and clients. Highland, intelligent content solutions for innovators everywhere at highland.com. A listener production. The typical car-owning Australian drives around 15,000 kilometers a year. And the average vehicle consumes just about 12 liters for every 100 kilometers driven. So that's 15,000 divided by 100 times 12, 1,800 liters of petrol a year. Now, each liter of petrol that gets burned in an engine, it produces about 2.3 kilograms of atmospheric carbon dioxide. So... Each Australian driver, each year, they generate about four tons of carbon dioxide times well. How many vehicles are there in Australia? Ah, about 20 million. And because it's necessary to estimate the worst cases here, let's say that each of those vehicles are being driven 15,000 kilometers a year, each of them consuming 12 liters of petrol for every 100 kilometers. That's four tons of carbon dioxide times 20 million. So that's 80 million tons of carbon dioxide. That's out of an estimated total of 400 million tons of carbon dioxide generated by everything in Australia, which is exactly 20%. What would it take to bring that down just 5% from 80 million to 76 million? That doesn't sound so hard, right? So what would need to change? And how quickly could we make that change happen? G'day, I'm Mark Pesci. The coming next billion seconds will be the most important in human history as we make a series of decisions that shape our future and the future of the planet. In this special series, we're taking a look at the nature of the problem before us. How can we make the transition to sustainability? We're looking at three key areas we need to work through, starting with transportation. We all need it. We all use it. It contributes a huge portion of Australia and the world's carbon emissions. But there's a change underway, a transition. It started slowly, it's accelerating, and it's reshaping our whole world. One of the great pleasures of creating the next billion seconds has been the opportunity to work with two lovely articulate and passionate individuals, both of whom know far more about transportation than I do and have been patient enough to teach me. So let me welcome back to the show my co-host, Sally Dominguez. Welcome back, Sal. Thanks, Mark. So happy to be here. And along with Sal, let me say hello to special correspondent, Drew Smith. How are you, Drew? I am wonderful. It's delightful to be back with you, Sal and Mark. So, Drew... 
we have seen more and more of the major automakers just in 2021 making big statements about the end of internal combustion engines. And who's the latest one on that list? Well, Mark, it's the grandmother, quite literally, of the modern car industry as we know it. The grey lady of Stuttgart, Mercedes-Benz. If you want a signal of just how serious Mercedes is about their electrification strategy, you only need to look at their new all-electric S-Class, known as the EQS. The S-Class has always set the trend for new technologies, ones that will filter down not just to other Mercedes, but throughout the entire industry. As a model, it's long been considered the harbinger of what's to come. So, after years of Mercedes toying around the edges with electrification, the fact that you can now buy an electric S-Class with 380 kilowatts of power and 675 kilometers of range shows that playtime is over, and EV is very definitely the future. So much so that between now and 2030, Mercedes will be investing over $60 billion in the development of battery electric vehicles. Now, of course, a lot of that money will go towards developing the new vehicles themselves. Mercedes is saying that by 2025, they expect that 50% of the cars that they sell will be either hybrid electric or fully electric. And from 2025 onwards, every new model they bring to market will be electric only. But crucially, some of that massive investment will go towards building factories that can produce batteries in sufficient numbers to fuel the brand's electric ambitions. With most battery production currently happening in Asia, having domestic capacity in Germany and in the US, where Mercedes produces the majority of its cars, is becoming a vital hedge against the all too apparent fragility of global supply chains and China's dominance within them. Now, to be clear, this shift is not born out of the kindness of Mercedes' heart. In Europe these days, the political climate is so stacked against internal combustion engines that it's going to be pretty much impossible to sell a petrol or diesel-fueled car in the EU beyond 2035. That's why Mercedes is far from alone in stumping up the big bucks to go all in on electrification. Stellantis, the company formed by the merger of Fiat Chrysler and Peugeot Citroen, are investing $50 billion by 2025, and Volkswagen's investing almost $100 billion over the next decade. So the race for EV supremacy is just getting started. Where we are now, at the end of this decade, sort of by 2030, is Australia going to be left as a dumping ground for petrol engines for the few makers who are making them? Is it going to be the worst of the worst of petrol vehicles available here? I think it's such an interesting point, Mark. And one of the things that doesn't get an awful lot of mention in Northern Hemisphere electrification strategies is what's going to be happening in the global south. The reality is the infrastructure required for global electrification just is not going to be in place in so many countries around the world. So, for example, you'll have Volvo making a public commitment to market that they're going to be a net zero carbon emissions company by 2030. In order to do that, they're spinning out their internal combustion engine manufacturing capacity so they can keep producing those engines and ship them down to the global south, whilst in the northern hemisphere, they're selling EVs to all and sundry. Can I add to that that, you know, if you take the broader picture, you've got all sorts of incentives in most of the world to promote EVs, to promote best practice, and then you've got Australia. 
if we want to get the best of these EVs, even if we start rolling out charging infrastructure, it'd be really nice to have a federal government that actually got on board and cared about not being the dumping ground. And would presumably be part of a larger strategy around bringing carbon emissions down, since we're talking about 20% of Australia's carbon emissions coming from transport. Yeah, I mean, ideally, they would just acknowledge that there was a massive issue and a massive um, issue in being out of step with the global community and the, and the Paris Accord. We're going to need that regulatory framework to really encourage the car industry to be on board. I mean, even if the consumers are on board, we need encouragement and tax credits. So, Sal, are EVs really going to cut the amount of carbon dioxide going into the atmosphere? How are we going to know whether the transition to EVs is actually going to help? It's such a good point, Drew, because things are constantly changing. We're living in a world of accelerating change and even I, trying to keep up on the front crest of that wave, am kind of falling behind because I've got to be honest with you, Drew, when Mark sent me this latest report that suggested that the life cycle emission for EVs is already more than 50% generally lower than for combustion engine cars, I was super cynical. Life cycle means we're examining every material that goes into the making of the car, the emissions created in mining that material, in processing it, in moving the parts, in moving the car, then the cost of creating the vehicle, cost of running the vehicle, the emissions it makes while it's running, and then the environmental cost of getting rid of all the parts of that car. So, this report, written by George Beaker, and I guess Mike will probably pop an attachment to it on the podcast version, it looked at cars now and in 2030, mid-sized vehicles, Europe, the USA, China and India didn't do Australia, but we'll get to that. So it covers gasoline, diesel and all the different types of EVs right through to battery and fuel cell. Lo and behold, the graphs on this report show, yes, the emissions cost of building the car is basically the same, regardless of drivetrain. And if you're in the USA or Europe, the emissions cost of producing the fuel is basically the same, whether it's petrol or electric. However, if you're in China or India, or I would argue Australia, the old school type of electricity production with coal-fired plants is a way higher emissions cost than petrol. And this is where, boys, I'm humble, but with great agility, I will kick myself in the head because times are a-changing and I am now wrong in my old preconceptions of this whole life cycle thing, because in every market researched, the electric vehicles on the road now had at least 50% less overall emissions. So I've got to update my life cycle thinking because the efficiency of the vehicles that are currently on the road are so much better than when it first just took off. And of course, we've got to look at what's powering those things. And so you look to those China and India figures and realise, Australia, get your act together and start making abundant renewable energy from renewable sources. The USA Energy Department says offshore wind can power 90% of the total electric requirements of the USA. And these are people with six TVs in a house, people. So if we can bring offshore wind and put it in charge of electricity production, tidal, green hydrogen, this will be transformational. This report concludes that only battery electric and hydrogen fuel cell electric vehicles have the potential to achieve those reductions that we need to meet the Paris Agreement. But it should have added, when we roll out these offshore wind, tidal power and geothermal, other green, abundant, green renewable energy things, can we roll them out to the developing countries as well? If you look at the figures in China and India, just imagine what they're like for Latin America and Africa. 
it's not okay. And so if we could all equitably share by distributing abundant renewable energy generation, I'm all for it. And I think this report is a great start. Well, and I think one of the things, and we'll cover this in episode five, is the transition to what they're now calling green steel. So steel that's not using carbon or coking carbon to be able to make. So because steel puts out an enormous amount of energy, but you can actually just use straight electricity for most of that process. And so if you're talking about a drive crank train, a lot of that's going to be steel. The frame's going to be steel. And so some of that would happen, but we haven't made a transition to green steel on a global basis yet either. One of my favorite anecdotes from the Paris Motor Show a couple of years ago was talking to a tier one supplier who produced seats. And I said, okay, talk to me about the sustainability characteristics of this product. And he said, well, it's perfect for thermal recovery. (laughs) And I'm like, what's thermal recovery? He said, well, basically, we put it in a furnace and we burn it. (laughs) End of the day, in 2020, the industry still produced 56 million cars there's still going to be an enormous amount of carbon emissions associated with that production. So yes, improvements in material science are going to help us like nibble that down. But overall, it's still a pretty heavily extractive industry. Yeah, that's where I reckon there'll actually be, like in so many industries right now, a radical rethink. And maybe we have swap in, swap out, drivetrains, plonk that same structure on top and just keep on going. Just for a second, Mark, let's talk about something other than those four wheels on the ground because I have seen you drive a car, but let's face it, that's a pretty rare occurrence. But you do like to travel. And that's not shade because we all travel, right? But flying could be up to 3% of global emissions. So what is the news, Mark, on the carbon neutral future of flight? Sal, you are right. I like to fly a lot. I did fly a lot before the pandemic. That is a lot of emissions. And even though I do rebate my carbon, I pay for carbon credits when I fly. Of course, it's always best if you never put the carbon into the air in the first place. And that brings us to flying cars. Yes, flying cars, as Sally knows... They are the bane of every futurist because every futurist always gets asked, where's my flying car? And you can probably blame the Jetsons for that. Now, for years, when I get asked that question, I turn it around and I ask people to consider how loud a single helicopter is when it's flying overhead. And then I say, okay, multiply that by 100,000. And this is why we don't have flying cars or Actually, it's why we didn't have flying cars. There's a company out of California, a startup named Joby Aviation, that has been working for a dozen years on, well, let's call it a flying car. It looks like the love child of a Dash 80 propeller plane and a Harrier because it has vertical takeoff and landing, but it's fixed wings, sort of. It has six propellers and they can rotate from horizontal, which is like a helicopter's main rotor, to vertical, like a normal propeller aircraft. So it can land and take off anywhere and it's unbelievably quiet. There's a video on YouTube and I will post this on our webpage where the 
founder of the company is giving a talk about their brand new prototype aircraft and the aircraft powers up and flies off behind him. And he never has to start shouting. He just keeps on talking. And he knows the point that he's making because he's kind of slyly smiling as this is happening because he knows what he's done is basically not conceivable before that moment. See, you could be standing next to this thing as it takes off and you can still hear yourself think. But best of all, the key innovation here is that it is electric. Now, electric flight, that's hard because flight requires an enormous amount of energy to generate the thrust to get something in the air. And that meant that for the last 110 years we've been flying around that jet fuel was the go-to solution because it delivered the density of energy needed to maintain flight. Batteries have always been too heavy. The amount of energy they provided was never enough to lift the aircraft and the weight of all of those batteries. But batteries are getting better and better. And we can thank, by the way, the electric car for that. And they're good enough now, just barely, but they are good enough now for flight. And so back in July, Joby Aviation put that to the test. They took their aircraft out for a long flight to test how far they could go on a charge. And they made it about 117 kilometers. Now, that doesn't sound like a lot, but that's more than enough because these flying cars are really meant for short-haul flights. They're more like flying taxis is probably a good way to think about them. They take people from point A to point B quickly, quietly, inexpensively, and without any emissions. Now, Joby Aviation is the first. They've been at it the longest. They're the most advanced. They're going into production at the end of next year. They will be in daily use by 2024. But hot on their heels are a number of other firms, Lilium, Archer, Whisk, even established aircraft manufacturers like Airbus and Embraer. So the skies above us, they will soon be filled with flying cars and they won't be polluting. Now, how much they cuts down on the 3% of global carbon emissions, that's anyone's guess. It's early days. Sal, this is roughly where EVs were a decade ago. And if that's the case, well, then by 2030, we're going to be spoiled for choice. You'd argue, though, that it may not be carbon dioxide pollution, but there's definitely some pollution to be had with all of those little vehicles up in the sky. You know, we've got Elon Musk's star satellites whisking past most nights as we look up stargazing. As with everything right now, equal parts horrifying and beyond exciting. Like, yes, I want to be up in one, but do I want all these other plebs up in one next to me in their own little vehicle? Hell no. And do I want to be able to zap them with some form of electrical force or have a force field? Yes, but I digress. I'm simply saying pollution-wise. Kind of scary, but exciting. I think the other thing that we need to bear in mind is like, how do we actually retrofit the infrastructure back into cities? I know it's not on the topic of carbon dioxide emissions, but when we're talking about the future of the planet, we've got to be talking about social equity as well. And what is it going to mean for communities to have these verti ports, as they're known, kind of the landing and charging stations for these flying taxis to be built into communities? And I think it's an important question for us to consider. Right. And what does that mean for the electric car? Because if you stop investing in road infrastructure, then you make it that much harder for electric cars to get around. Is that what we want as well? I mean, there's no really perfect answers here. I think that's kind of what we're starting to see. There are just answers that maybe give us the wiggle room we need over the next 12 years and then over the next 
billion seconds to be able to get the breathing space that we don't melt the planet. All right, Drew, Sal, thank you so much for your contributions. We'll see you again soon on the next billion seconds. Always an absolute pleasure. Love talking to you both. Thank you. Loved it. In our next episode, we'll take a look at another huge contributor to carbon emissions in Australia, electricity generation. We have got more sunshine than any other continent, yet we still burn coal. Why? Because baseload. So we'll have a look at what that means and what we can do about it. That's our next episode. The Next Billion Seconds was written and presented by Mark Pesci. Sally Dominguez. And Drew Smith. For more about the topics in our show, including the links to our stories about Mercedes, the sustainability of EVs, and Joby's long test flight, come visit our website at nextbillionseconds.com. This is Mark Pesci, thanking you for listening. Listener.